Thank you for listening to the Faith Free Lutheran Church Sermon Archive. Today's sermon for the first Sunday after Trinity, June 6, 2021, is preached by Pastor Jason Goodham. If you have questions or comments regarding today's message, please call the church office at 612-824-5527 or visit our website at faithlutheran-aflc.org. Good morning again. Special welcome to those of you who are visiting us this morning. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I would at this time invite you to stand as I read the Old Testament lesson appointed for this Sunday. The sermon text is taken from Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 15. can be found on page 5 of your pew Bible if you'd like to follow along. Reading in Jesus' name, Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 15. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Heavenly Father, these are your words, and your word is truth. We pray that this morning you would sanctify us in the truth, that you would convict us of sin in our lives where that is necessary, and that you would comfort and encourage us with the promises of your gospel. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As a Norwegian who has briefly lived in other cultures in the United States, I can tell you what an odd and even jarring experience it is to live among people who are not like you. Norwegians and all Scandinavians, it seems, are wired in a very certain way. We have a self-effacing humor, we practiced forced humility, and it can be said of all Scandinavians that we always know what our shoes look like, because we're always staring at the ground. This stands in stark contrast to other more direct parts of the United States, including where I lived for a year in Oklahoma City. And during one particularly noteworthy experience, someone paid me a compliment. Now, it wasn't just noteworthy because someone paid me a compliment. I know how hard that is to believe. But it was noteworthy because of what he did. After complimenting me on something, and I think it was in college, I naturally, as a very good Scandinavian, deflected the praise, and then I downplayed it to the nth degree. Only this time, this person stopped me in my tracks and confronted me, and he said something to the effect of, don't do that. Don't do what? I responded. Don't refuse to accept my compliment. What do you mean? When you refuse to accept my compliment, you are telling me that I don't know what I'm talking about. And I know what I'm talking about. It was an eye-opening experience for me, and it's something 
that I'm still working on. I have to try very hard to accept and graciously receive compliments. It, it still normally makes my skin crawl when someone would say something nice about me to my face. Now, all of this has a pretty relevant application to our Old Testament lesson this morning, believe it or not. Not because God is paying Adam and Eve a compliment, more or less the exact opposite is occurring, but rather because what we perceive God thinks about us often gets in the way of who he reveals himself to be and what he actually says about us. And so as we turn our attention back to Genesis 3 this morning, we're going to look at the consequences of what happens when we think worse about ourselves than God does and what happens when we think better about ourselves than God does. And then we're going to look at what actually God says about us and what that means he thinks about us. So, first question. What happens when we think worse about ourselves than God does. After the deception of the serpent and the fall of Adam and Eve into sin in the Garden of Eden, our section in Genesis 3 opens with Adam and Eve trying to hide from God's presence. And now, if there's anyone in the universe who plays hide-and-seek worse than a three-year-old, it's Adam and Eve trying to hide from God's presence in the Garden of Eden. That very act tells us everything we need to know about what's going on and sets the tone for the entire theme of the rest of the passage. Why were Adam and Eve hiding from God in the first place? They were naked and ashamed, and they knew they had sinned. So they tried to hide from God's presence. They tried to cover up, in this case literally with fig leaves, their sin. But here's the thing. God knew because he's God. And God still wanted to be with them, which is why he was walking in the garden during the cool of the day. And this is where we start to get our sin wrong in God's eyes. As we begin to recognize our sinfulness and feel shame because of our sin, our first response is to try to hide our sin from God. And the very next step is to try to hide ourselves from God, to run away. This runs throughout the entire scripture. The best example that I could come up with, think about Jonah's response to God's command to preach to the Ninevites. Jonah hightails it out and runs the opposite direction from Nineveh. And still God followed. And this is our moral and spiritual dilemma. Why would God want to be with us, miserable sinners, He's probably already cast me away from his presence and abandoned me, right? Why would God, after I failed him so miserably, want to be with me? And so in the midst of our sin and in the midst of our shame, we do the exact worst possible thing. We cut ourselves off from God. 
I cannot tell you in 10 years as a pastor how many people I've talked to that told me they stopped coming to church because they were aware of their sin. The last thing you need to do in your sin and in your shame is to cut yourself off from the presence of God because God wants to be with you. And that's what happens when we think worse about our sin than God does. Now, at this point, we're tempted to commit a second mistake in a similar fashion to Adam. And we ask ourselves the question then, what happens when we think better about ourselves than God does? If God wants to be with us, even in the midst of our sin, then it must be the case that our sin doesn't matter as much as we initially feared it does. And once again, we're wrong about that. After discovering that God still wants to talk to Adam after his sin, God then confronts Adam about his sin, and Adam falls into a second great deception. Adam convinces himself that he's better than this and that his sin isn't his fault. But listen to Adam's response after God confronts him. Adam said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Adam does three things here. We ought to pay close attention. First, he blames God for his sin. Now think about that. On its surface, that sounds like maybe the most ridiculous thing we could conceive of. Standing before the God of the universe and pointing at him and saying, it's his fault. Uh, I don't think anyone in this room right now would ever have the guts to do that, and yet we do it on a regular basis when we complain in our spirit that God's law is too hard, that God demands too much from us. And that is the response of our sinful nature. When we come face to face with the fact that God demands perfection from his people, our first response to God is, no, it's too much, God. It's your fault. After Adam sets the tone and he gets rolling, then he turns to his wife and he blames her. The woman, she gave me the fruit. It's entirely true that Eve gave Adam the fruit. It's also entirely true that Adam should have known better. That Adam, directly from the mouth of God, received the command to not eat the fruit of the tree. And then, and only then, as Adam has established his alibi, Adam confesses his sin. And that's where God steps in again. Because what we learn in this passage and in so many other passages in the Bible, any way Adam looks at it, sin is his problem. At the end of it all, he has to admit, I ate. And to get around that reality, Adam had to continue to deceive himself. God loves me. He still wants to be with me. It must not be that bad. Maybe my sin isn't even my fault. 
God was being unreasonable. Someone else forced me to behave this way. The devil made me do it. Whatever the case might be, as we in our sinful nature try to excuse our sin, we end up being dishonest about three things. We're dishonest about the quality of our character. What's interesting, and we've heard this a lot in the last year with all the stress and the strife surrounding the pandemic and everything going around in the world. People will say, you're better than this, or I'm better than this. The reality of Scripture is, no, you're not. When you sin, you're not better than that. It comes from your character. We also end up being dishonest about the consequences of our actions. If we can somehow make our sin not matter, we don't have to repent of our sin, we just need to feel better about our sin. But finally, and especially, we end up deceiving ourselves about God's identity. We end up deceiving ourselves about who God is. We believe He can be manipulated We believe that he somehow screwed up. And what we believe is that God isn't God. And that's the very nature of our sin. All sin is idolatry. All sin is us telling God, I know better than you. And in doing so, we've fallen into the second trap. The first trap in regard to our sin is shame. And the second trap is enmity. Is hostility. And refusing to accept responsibility for our sin, we create enmity. Enmity between us and others. We're in constant competition with them for our good works, trying to look better and holier than the next guy, which is exactly what Adam did with Eve. The woman, she made me screw up. Sure, I might have sinned, but she sinned twice. She ate and gave me the fruit. I only sinned once. Therefore, I'm in line in front of her. Then it's okay. But the real enmity is between us and God. Our disobedience in rebellion puts us in a hostile position before God. It makes us His enemy. And this is where we need to start paying attention. Because at this point... As we've combed the depths of what Adam thinks about himself on either side of the issue, as Adam looks at God and tries to establish his own righteousness, God speaks. And he not only speaks to Adam and Eve, he speaks to us. And our third and final question today then is what happens when God thinks properly about our sin. What happens when God gives us the reality of our sin? And this entire situation with Adam and Eve, just as it is with us and our sin, God doesn't change. He doesn't change his plan, he doesn't change his word, and he doesn't change his character. He doesn't waffle. He doesn't back down. He remains consistent with whom he's revealed himself to be because God always thinks properly about our sin. 
God looks for us. He seeks us out. Even as we've withdrawn from his presence, even as we've tried to hide ourselves in our sin from him, he looks for us. And then he addresses us in our shame. Where are you? Who told you that you were naked? He then turns and he addresses our responsibility. Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And then maybe the most haunting question in all of Scripture. What have you done? What have you done? God is blatantly and directly honest about our sin. He knows that it exists. He knows that it has corrupted us. He knows that it is our fault. And he even punishes our sin. The fallout after all this, and the the rest of chapter 3, after the place where we stopped for our sermon text, is God laying down the punishment for Adam and Eve because of their disobedience. Even in their forgiveness, there is temporal and material consequences for their sin. But something happens. God thinks properly about our sin, and then he turns and he addresses our enemies. He knows that we're vulnerable. He knows that we're weak, and he especially knows that we are under attack by an enemy who has enticed us, and an enemy who has deceived us, and an enemy who wants to destroy us. And that enemy, as we see here in Genesis 3, isn't just Satan. It's our own sinful flesh. But after speaking words to Adam and to Eve and to us, God speaks to the serpent. And he says this, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What you need to notice about what happens in Genesis 3 after the very first sin is that God judges. God judges our sin. God judges our enemies. And then God comes to heal, and to redeem. The final words God speaks to the serpent should be like a balm to your soul because it's a promise. And for you and for me, it's a promise that God has already fulfilled and completed. God knows about your sin, all of it. God knows about your enemies, how sin, death, and the devil threaten to overwhelm and devour you at every turn. And what God has done is he's taken care of it for you. God has forgiven your sins. And God has conquered your enemies. And he has done this in and by the power of his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sin. He shed his blood to pay the price for every single time you've disobeyed God and rebelled against him. And then Jesus Christ rose from the grave, and in doing so, he demonstrated that sin has been paid for, that death has been defeated, and that Satan has been overcome. 
And there is now nothing you need to fear. Not because your sin doesn't matter, but because your sin has been paid for. Not because the devil is not real or some toothless cartoony figure in red spandex with a pitchfork, but because in his terror and strength, Satan is a defeated foe. God knows you. He knows what you've done. He knows what you deserve. But in his great grace and mercy, he has put himself in your flesh and blood to save you. And in his great grace and mercy, he now gives you his flesh and blood to forgive all your sins, to comfort you in all your fear, to deliver you from your shame and from your enmity with him and from all your enemies. And so as you receive Holy Communion this morning, know this and hear these words over and over again as you walk to the altar. God has saved you. You are reconciled to him. Your sins are forgiven. You are no longer God's enemies. You deserve none of this, but he has given it to you freely because he knows you and he loves you and he has died and risen again for you. Amen. And now may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.